Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Like Phil Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I'm very happy to have again my friend, the philosopher Patrick Lee Miller, who is, uh, as uh, the producer uh, Sagan pointed out uh, before we went live, he's sort of our uh, our Paul Bloom, you know, on Sam Harris's podcast. This is, I think, Patrick, your fourth time on the podcast i think you you have the the all-star record i I believe (laughs) (laughs) thank you i'm honored yeah well it's it's great to have you on again so the uh the occasion of this is that ann applebaum came out with this book uh twilight of democracy which uh the likeville uh reading group read and we had a fantastic fantastic discussion about the book from people all over the world and uh, you just uh, couldn't couldn't stand the book, and I thought I, I was I thought I was so charmed by that. So uh, maybe you could sort of just tell our listeners what you think uh, Applebaum's argument is, and and what your main problems with it are. Yeah. Well, let's be clear first about how uh, we fixed on this topic. You posted some quotations by her on Instagram. And I just objected to those particular quotations. I had not even read the book at that point. So you invited me on the show to read the book. And I'm grateful that I did, obviously, to be on the show, but also to have read the book. I think it's an important document. uh, That is to say a record of a certain way of thinking at this moment in time. And I still disagree with it in the way that I disagree with those objections. I think I disagree with it even more thoroughly than I expected before reading it. But I mean, the first thing that we should say is what's valuable about it. Well, let me say, I, I think I should say what's valuable about it. So first of all, it's a record of a certain way of thinking, and we'll, we'll get into that. I think, secondly, she's looking for causes of, let's say, the rise of authoritarianism, as she understands it. And because she's an international figure who lives in Poland, has lived for a time in England, and has written for publications all over Europe and in, in the United States, She's not the kind of critic of Trump, for example, who says that, you know, Trump is Trump. Trump rose because of white supremacy, for example. She's got an international perspective that forces her to recognize what happened with Trump in the United States is also happening or has happened in Brazil and Poland and Hungary and the Philippines and so on. So she has to look for broader explanations than, than the kind that are typical in, in American discussions of the phenomenon. So that's the, that's the one uh, really good thing I, I had to say about it. The second was, as I say, it, it's as a document and the book begins and ends with parties. So 
I think she's sort of even set it up as a document of a certain kind of person and their reaction to the present moment. So the first party is, it happens on New Year's Eve in 1999. And then the second party happens at some point in 2019. And she compares those two parties. So in the first party, she uh, hosts it in Poland uh, at the, the kind of dilapidated house that she and her husband uh, have bought there. And, and she, she mentions in passing that there were 100 guests and that she did the cooking, which I think is amazing. And uh, those people who collected for that party, it was apparently a really good time. She says that that party would no longer be possible. So that when she had the same sort of party in 2019, I think she said half of the guests, either she wouldn't invite or they wouldn't come if she invited them. So she's, she's talking about a particular type of person who has this particular social circle. And I think her ultimate concern is why did, why did I lose all these friends? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say you're, you're right. And I, I definitely, I take your sort of, at least I think what your suggestion is here that, that there's maybe a little bit of the, you know, Christopher Latches, the culture of narcissism here where like the person, assuming that the personal is political and that like, you know, whatever is going on in your inside yourself or in your interpersonal relationships is necessarily representative of the whole or, uh, yeah, I get that. But then, you know, I also think, um, you know, many of Plato's best dialogues begin and end with parties. So clearly there is yeah. some sort of connection between the personal and the political, and it's not, you know, it's not totally out of bounds. No, I don't think it's out of bounds at all. And that's, that's why I'm saying, and I'm, I'm not being ironic when I say this is an important document as a record of the kind of thinking of that class of people, both the class of people that went to that party in 1999 and the class of people who went to the second party in 2019, uh, who are, you know, I think it's a it's hundred people again, roughly. And so 50 have, have not been invited or haven't come. Uh, 50 other people have taken their place. So the, the question is, what is the thinking of those hundred people? you know, who remain in 2019. And I think it's an important document because this phenomenon that she's trying to describe is in a way that she can't recognize a reaction against those kind of people. Okay. So it's, it's a reaction. So, I mean, one of her claims is that uh, people who are attracted to authoritarianism are, uh, they have a kind of an allergic reaction to complexity. They can't stand, they want simplicity. They want simple narratives. Uh, and as as you said in our, our sort of correspondence about this, you said, well, uh, oh, so so Caesar couldn't handle complexity, but <laughs> but Cicero could, you know, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So what what is your issue with that? Well, I just think it's a laughable definition of authoritarianism. So, you know, yeah, I was making a joke, but I'm, I'm, I'm deadly serious about the comparison between Caesar and Cicero. So Cicero turns out to be the hero of her book. He's the last person mentioned on the last page. She says, we're fighting the fight that Hamilton fought, you know, to establish the United States Constitution and that Cicero fought. So she's identifying herself with a particular class of people in the Roman Republic, the optimates, whom Pompey led in a battle against Caesar for the future of the Republic. And as we all know, Caesar became emperor, but she's taking the side of Cicero and, and Pompey. And I just think that's naive. I think reading the first century BC history of Rome, that that takeover by one person, uh, you know, uh, Julius Caesar in the first case, and then Octavian, that, that was inevitable. So the idea that uh, we should identify with Cicero and keep alive this ideal of the Republic, which was doomed and which just caused three civil wars, one after the other, until finally Octavian pacified Rome. 
I, 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 I don't know how she, as a historian, could take that side. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, I guess I kept, when I was reading the book, I kept thinking about uh, Daniel Markowitz's book, which is, the book really needs an editor. It's like twice as long as it should be. And it's quite repetitive. It's it's the kind of book that you see very often with a, a senior sort of scholar statesman who has like a lot of respect from editors and everything. And so nobody wants to edit him, you know, and they don't want to <laughs> like, and so, but he's, he's clearly brilliant and has a lot of wisdom, but he's got to the point of age where he's starting to repeat himself a lot and tell the same stories. So the book is repetitive, but it's still so fantastic. It's called the meritocracy trap. And what he argues, he was the head of uh, Yale law school for years. And he says that, uh, Really, you want to. He looks at the same kind of things that Applebaum is looking at, but he comes to a very different conclusion. I think a conclusion that's very similar to yours on this score. And he says that the uh, meritocracy was brought into place as a replacement for systems that were based on just, you know, hereditary and various other kinds of arbitrary categories like your last name, you know, being male as opposed to female being a wasp as opposed to, you know, a Jew or being, you know, various other categories that meritocracy was supposed to be the great uh, leveler, the big democratic force. And and he says, you know, it definitely is far better than what it replaced. And so it, it was definitely an upgrade. Uh, and it did actually have a democratizing sort of power to it, for sure. However, what has happened now, he says, is that meritocracy has become a new kind of hereditary, produced a new kind of hereditary elite. And you have these very, very wealthy people who, for various reasons, just invest heavily, heavily in their kids. I mean, they just focus so much in in developing their inner talents and their skills and spending a great deal of money on everything from horseback lessons to violin lessons to math tutoring to taking them on trips you know to to Europe and all over the world to like see things and learn things that this new elite they don't need uh, privilege they don't need white privilege or you know male privilege or any of the other things to succeed they succeed because they're just way better they're way more prepared on average than uh, and he gives like all these crazy crazy stats like on how many people got into ivy league schools from public high schools as recently as like 1970 1980 it was well over 50 percent of the of the people who ended up in these top schools and top positions, got there from working class backgrounds, being son or daughter of a farmer, of a you know coal miner, that was all possible. And now he said, that just does not exist. So you have a kind of a Bennington ad surface superficial diversity that, okay, people are different genders and colors and things like gender expressions. But actually, if you scratch, if you scratch be- below the surface, you find they all are from the top uh, 10% of of the country, indeed the the world, and and actually, even even then, a huge percentage of them are from the top kind of five percent. So that your chances of getting into a top school or top program from a public high school is less than five percent now. So it's uh, and, and anyway, he gives a lot of he says the the uh, on standardized tests the gap now between members of the elite and members of the middle class is larger than the gap between 
white students and black students in 1954. Yeah, so it's uh, so he says that meritocracy has has failed to deliver on its promises, and that a lot of the resentment you see against meritocracy is because people recognize that if you grow up in a small town in Michigan, let's say, like there is no way you're ever going to get into the elite, right? So is that, yeah, is that so I, sort of similar to your take on it or? Um, sort of, but it's not quite. I mean, it's, it's adding to it, I think. So I take the critique you're making on, on behalf of this author to be that the meritocracy is hypocritical. So it, it, it was supposed to replace a hereditary system, but over time it, it itself has become a hereditary system and, and is thus unfair. That's, is that the critique? Uh, that's the, yeah, that's the critique that it, it basically, it's, it's really, it's impossible if you are not born into those systems, then yeah. you're just you're vastly unprepared, and so the chances of you actually doing well in this new economy are are slim to none, unless you're very lucky or extraordinarily talented in some narrow way. And so what that means is that uh, people come to the conclusion that the only way I can get a piece of this pie is through revolution. It's through uh, basically you know, going in a very tribal way, supporting somebody who is going to, uh, by force, put people who look like me and sound like me into positions of, of power and authority. That that's the only way that I can't, I can't get there through, uh, through merit because that's, that's never going to work. It's like, I'm, I'm, showing up to a gunfight with a knife like you know there's no way i'm ever gonna succeed in that so i'm gonna i'm gonna do asymmetric warfare so voting for trump or you know supporting uh, populists is a form of uh, class asymmetric warfare yeah and well that could be true the basis of that critique well you know depends is it a sociological critique saying this is why trump rose or is it a moral critique saying this is why something had to be done because this was unjust. But, but in either case, my critique is different. It's not that meritocracy is hypocritical and it's reproducing a hereditary system against its own stated egalitarian goals. Uh, my point is, is it in a way just simpler that the, the people who rise in the meritocracy are just not that good. So it's not about what is their backgrounds and, and whether it's fair by egalitarian considerations. It's, it's rather that the people who get promoted are just not that good at what they do. And I think the record of the last 20 years has been pretty good evidence of that. Okay. Whether so what do you think, what do you or, think is wrong? Like, what do you think is wrong with, because uh, th- that I think is a far more devastating critique. I, I think you, I think you're probably right. I mean, that's, in fact, that was, um, Daniel Markowitz, the the guy who wrote the meritocracy trap, he was on Sam Harris's podcast, and Sam Harris asked him, uh, sort of very similar to what you just said. He kind of gently asked him that question, and uh, Markowitz kind of evaded the question. But he he said Sam Harris said the same thing as you. He said, uh, "Well, you know, you're assuming that these meritocrats are all like, you know." meritorious that they're amazing (laughs) he says but i'm not he goes i'm not convinced of that it looks to me like the cream is not necessarily rising to the top uh, at all so i haven't read that yeah i haven't read that book but just based on one thing that you said um here here's a reaction so the measurement that he was making markovitz is that what his name is yes yeah yeah the measurement that you reported that he was making of why these uh, children of this hereditary meritocracy are so much better than everybody else is that they get into Harvard. And this 
if you like deeper critique or at any rate, the let's call it the, the ability critique that I'm making is that getting into Harvard is not a sign that you're better than anybody else. I'd say it's, it's, it's more a sign that you are know how to play by the rules of the, you know, the current system, or in many cases that you, you haven't stepped out of line ideologically in a way that would, um, you know, invalidate your application to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's very true. I mean, Mitch, Herb, Applebaum says that essentially in these societies, there's people who feel like, uh, in, in a way, it reminds me of a book that you and I uh, enjoyed a great deal and spoke about before Francis Fukuyama's book on identity, yes. right? And yes. how thumos being a really important part of politics. And it seems like, you know, also Applebaum is making a somewhat similar point. She's saying that a lot of these movements, they claim to be fueled by uh, anxieties about immigration and about economic things, and she and she doesn't dismiss that. She says immigration is uh, is actually stressing certain societies and certain areas, and that it is you know it's not like people are just making this up. Uh, and also, yeah. she says economic changes are also uh, causing a lot of problems and dislocation and things like that. However, she says it it's not an a sufficient explanation for how these things are, these reactions against them. Because very often what you find, and I see this even right here in Quebec, that often the people who are most hysterical about, um, let's say, like Muslim immigrants, are people who live in completely homogeneous white francophone small towns where they've never seen a, you know, a Hungarian, you know, much less a hijab. Like they, they've never seen any... They're this, so they're freaking out about immigration is something that is just an imaginative, you know, and she talks about Hungary and other places that have like practically no Muslim immigrants whatsoever. And the ones that they did have, you know, left. Uh, And yet there's this massive kind of, uh, you know, what she says, like anti-immigrant and specifically kind of fear of Islam and stuff like that. And then also when it comes to economic dislocation, she says that there's many places that have had a lot of, economic dislocation without having these populist authoritarian movements. So she says that ultimately, uh, uh, she doesn't use the word, but, uh, you know, thumos and resentment and uh, desire to be first and to be recognized is very often a better um, explanation for what's going on here. It's the chip on the shoulder of a Steve Bannon or a Donald Trump who feels like, you know, the cool kid's have just never let them sit at their table. And they always, you know, you look down on me, you know, like that kind of chip on the shoulder and like, I'll show you, I'll show you, you know. Like this song goes out to all those teachers who said I'd never amount to nothing, you know. And and all those people who called the police when I was just trying to sell drugs to feed my daughter, you know, like this incredible kind of resentment as a creative destructive force, right? Yeah, so that's why I think that the the story of the parties is important and really gets at, you know, what's fueling this. So, you know, she loses all these friends. And as part of the book, she she tries to contact some of them to find out, you know, what are the disagreements or or whatever, you know, whatever her motivation is. And some of them uh, respond and she gives them a very thin, you know, record of what it is they actually said. And some of them, you know, don't respond. One of them says, what would be the point? And she sees that as a kind of anti-intellectualism, like, well, we're now so far apart that, you know, you're in your alternate reality, and so there's no point. She doesn't seem to sense that these people might have a legitimate critique of 
of her. So, for example, uh, you know, as you say, she thinks that this is fueled by resentful people. Uh, the, the critique of the, merit- the meritocracy is fueled by resentful people who lost. In other words, the meritocracy she assumes is just. And if somebody it doesn't like the meritocracy, it's because they've been a loser in the, merit- the meritocratic system. It just never occurs to her that the meritocracy is not just. So here, here's one example. There are several uh, that I noted, but here's one. She says, you know, the Polish government, law and justice, which I think is the most vivid part of the book. She knows the Polish scene really well from the inside. She says, you know, the Polish government did all these foolish things uh, when law and justice really went off the rails from her estimation. And one of them is that they fired uh, generals who had been trained in expensive American academies. And the, 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 the thinking seems to be, well, we put in all this money and we train them in expensive American academies, so we, we should keep them. There's not a hint of recognition there that, well, wait a second, the United States has lost drastically, sort of catastrophically, its last two wars. Why should we think that people trained in American academies are superior generals? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good point, yeah. It just there's just like there's just no awareness. It's just like the American system is the best. People who succeed in the American system are therefore the best. You spent all this money to get the best, and so you should keep them. You know, despite the fact that they have this record of failure. Yeah, it, it reminds me of like what John Ralston Saul refers to as the the colonial mindset. You know, where uh, people who live in in sort of satellites of of Rome, you know, whatever Rome happens to be at the time, uh, they yes. will. The way that you get prestige is by leaving the colonies, going to the mother country, whatever the mother country happens to be at the at the moment, and you get yes. your. So you could have an like let's say an amazing um, biology program at the Université de Montréal here, and yet people would go to a far inferior program. I mean, I'm talking like in the mid 20th century. People would go to like yes. a, a far inferior program in France. Uh, the Sorbonne was a, yes. a mess at the moment. They would do yes. a degree there and come back here just draped in glory and would get right. a, get be offered tons of jobs when, in fact, the program at UDM was publishing more cutting-edge stuff, had more like amazing people working there. In fact, many of them from France, but because it's not – it's a colony. And then, likewise, uh, John Rosenthal points out that, like, for a long time, Canadians would go to – to Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, stuff like that. And that was like, and then that, that as our Rome switched to being the States, then people went to the Ivy Leagues to go to Harvard. And, and you know, it's, it's not just in academia. I mean, I remember uh, a friend of mine, she was telling me that her husband, he was, he worked for the NFB documentary filmmaker here in Canada. And he was producing really great work. He was like getting a lot of critical acclaim, but he was just, he had hit like something like a glass ceiling. He just couldn't get above it and he didn't know why. And somebody said, look, you got to do something in LA. You got to do something in the States. (laughs) Just, it can be anything. It can be like a garbage movie that nobody watches. Just show that you made it in the, you know, in the, the big country. And so he went down to LA, made this like dumb film that totally forgettable came back and suddenly every phone call he made was answered every email he sent was responded he suddenly just had bumped to oh you know the important people have recognized you right so now we should right it's that colonial insecurity that uh, so yeah i mean maybe maybe what these uh, polish nationalists were doing was just pushing back on that and saying 
I don't care if you went to an American military college, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many directions we can and go here. I can think of two. Hopefully I'll remember the second after I finish the first, but uh, one is the, the prestige economy that, that you're talking about, that, you know, and you added the colonial bit as well. So I mean, back to the, the two critiques of the meritocracy that we were talking about, the Markovits and, and then the one that, that I was making, I think a lot of people would be okay with a meritocracy that was unjust, so long as the leaders were good at what they were doing. So, of course, there are always going to be people who, who want to rise to the top. And if they feel they're not, they know they're not rising to the top, they're going to be resentful. But a lot of people also are, are willing to say, well, I'm not, I, I didn't make it to the top, but at least the leaders are doing, they're, they're, you know, they're making the economy run and they're, and they're winning the wars. And that's where the, the anger comes, not so much at being left out, but by being left out by people who are terrible at, at what they do. The other thing I, I wanted to add is the way in which she doesn't seem to recognize that the American empire is dissolving. So that the American empire, which itself is a kind of hypocritical thing, obviously, after the Second World War, but that the American empire underwrote a lot of these liberal democratic regimes across the world. And as the American empire loses its prestige, so too do some of these you know, countries at the periphery of the, of the American empire say, well, you know, we're, we're not going to cooperate with the rules of the American empire anymore. One of which might have been our generals go to your schools. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So what do you think about, you know, what she has to say about um, kind of polite discussion and, you know, fake news and her her sort of defense of the intelligentsia, you know, and the keeping all debate within the center right and the center left and excluding radical voices and stuff like that? What, what did you make of that? Yeah, I think the key notion here in her book is uh, La Trahison des Clercs. You, your pronunciation, pronunciation would no doubt be better than mine, but she refers to this book by Benda in uh, the 1920s in France, the thesis of which was that the clerks, which is you know this French word that he's using for the intellectuals, that they had betrayed the left by giving rationales for the irrational surges on the right. So what Applebaum's real target here, again, I think is the 50 people who won't come to her parties anymore. She sees them (laughs) as uh, traitor clerks, traitor intellectuals, so that, you know, they were doing fine under the old system, but not well enough by their standards. They wanted to be more successful. And so they allied themselves with the irrational surges on the right and gave rationalizations for populism and for Trump style figures around the world. Again, she's totally blind to that critique that's been going on for a long time of, we could call it left-wing intellectuals, but I think just more generally the university and the media, the way in which the university and the media function as sort of mills for the production of thought that legitimizes the regime. She just doesn't seem aware uh, that that's been happening, or even if she doesn't think it's been happening, that that's been a critique for quite a while now, coming from the right especially. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you think there's any way to to repair this? You know, in the way, because she, she wants to sort of, you know, pull back, you know, like a sort of never Trumpers and, David Frum and David Brooks and all these these people uh, who say, okay, we need to bring back civility and we want we need to bring back the. Do you think that is gone for good, or do you think that is salvageable? 
Well, it depends what we mean. Um, I think that the constituency that they represent is gone for good. If that's, you know, if we're just talking sort of power politics. So I think there's a frustration among that class that they've lost their constituency. In other words, I don't think we're going back to pre-Trump America or, you know, take the other countries. I don't think they're going back to their, their pre-Trump figure, you know, consensus. And again, I think that's for good reason that the consensus was based on a fake meritocracy. So, you know, take, take the lies in the media, you know, the media makes mistakes, but it always seems to me, most of its mistakes get made in one direction. And, you know, and take, I mean, I'm just thinking of a tweet this morning by Andrew Sullivan, where he just said, look, here are 10, you know, whatever it was, 10 very recent, very powerful errors that have happened in the media. Why should we trust the media any longer? And again, Applebaum doesn't seem aware that, you know, the media consensus that was, uh, you know, the establishment of that center um, the sphere in which the polite debate would happen. She doesn't seem aware that that was manufactured and that just people aren't, aren't buying that any longer. Mm-hmm. But I mean, on balance, it seems like it, it got a lot of things right. I mean, it definitely uh, it, it excluded... I guess, you know, what I hear from my students very often is, I don't know what you hear from yours, but they say, well, you know, it's it's so much more exciting now that uh, that news and sure, there's more kind of fake information, but it's more engaging. It's emotionally engaging. It's kind of visually interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, you know, it doesn't feel fake. It feels kind of authentic. And so I wonder, you know, because this is, you know, something that, you know, you and I, I've been talking about for for years now, but the, the the whole kind of Nietzsche's critique of of modernity and in general, but you know, democracy that it ends up being so bloodless and it doesn't have enough uh, guts and enough like kind of emotionality and it doesn't provide like yeah. a full experience. You know, the I, I think you had a wonderful uh, analogy once, and you said it was it was the difference between. Um, you were talking about like church services and you said it's the difference between a very dry Protestant sermon delivered in a very kind of high intellectual style with no emotionality versus um, either, I don't know, like a Russian Orthodox or a Catholic or where you have all the beautiful like stained glass and the smells of the incense and you have all the pageantry and the beautiful ornate kind of statues and the, the robes and all that stuff. And, or uh, your other comparison was to like a, a really amazing kind of African-American church and, you know, Southern Baptist church where there's call and answer and a lot of emotionality that the, uh, that you said, you know, Nietzsche's critique is, is that a lot of modern institutions and ways of being are, are more like that Protestant sermon. <laughs> Huh, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, do you think that is? Does that sort of still ring true to you? Some some of that. I mean, well, um, I, yeah, I don't know if I'm repudiating my former self there or not. <laughs> In this context, though, I would say that you know, your if your students like the current media atmosphere because it's more fun or more engaging or, or whatever. You know, I would say facts don't care about your feelings. Uh, so I don't think that we should judge it based on, you know, either the current media environment or the old one based on whether they were exciting or not. I think we just based it on whether it's telling the truth. And I think it's it's very clear to me that the mainstream media is just not telling the truth any longer, if, if it ever did. So one reason I like the current media environment better is if you're careful, you know, if you've, if you've got a Twitter feed where you're really 
interested in a diversity of opinions and, you know, you dig down into the opinions and what are the arguments that these people are giving and so on, you can get closer to the truth than you, than you could have by watching CNN or Fox or even CNN and Fox. Yeah. Well, it is, it is kind of amazing how certain, for me, it's not so much, although that definitely is a concern of mine is whether something is true or not in the, in the media or, or distorted or not. For me, the thing that I find much more troubling is I had, uh, I will obviously leave the name absent here, but uh, out. But I, I had an editor tell me once after like quite a few whiskeys, um, he's. I said, so I was a younger, younger guy. I was like, I think maybe like twenty, twenty-one years old, and I was. Uh, he was dating a friend of mine. He was much older, but he was the editor of a, of a publication. And he's. I said to him, I said, well, how do you how do you decide what you're going to publish? And he just laughed, and he said, uh, "Well, basically, I'll publish anybody who says one of these seven things." <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I just my jaw just like absolutely dropped, and I thought he was just you know being funny, uh, but he he was being serious, and he said, "Yeah, you know, basically, if if somebody if people say like, you know, this this this, uh, I'll publish." So and. And ever since he said that, I've noticed that there is this pattern that – and once I, once I detect that pattern in a media organization, I just I, – I can feel myself lose so much interest in them almost immediately. When I realize like, oh, okay, so you're basically going to tell – uh, you know, one of these, you know, whatever, seven stories or 10 stories or five stories. And, and if something if something is outside of that range – you're just not even going to talk about it. Like, and, and what that means is like, okay, there have to be certain people have to be the villains in your story and certain people have to be the good guys. And the narrative has to resolve itself uh, in a, in a very predictable way. You know, the answer is we just, you know, have to fight racism more effectively, or the answer is we just need more Jesus in our, you know, our, our conversation. The answer is, you know, we just need more free markets in our company. Like market free markets uh, are the solution for everything. Uh, government's a problem with everything. Uh, the sort of secularism is the problem with everything. Jesus is the answer for everything. Uh, anti-racism is the solution for everything. Racism and you know bigotry is the pro- like. It's just once you realize this pattern, you're like, oh fuck, you're so predictable and annoying. Like. You know, and that's that to me is I think much more of a problem than for me at least. I, I find that much more of a problem than fake news or 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 even distorted news. Because fake news and distorted news I can at least potentially find disconfirming evidence. I can sort of I can learn that that, that didn't happen or it didn't happen quite like that. With the other problem, it's like you're just not even telling me about huge swaths of the world. You're just acting like huge swaths of the world. It's like um, I think in John McWhorter's book, um, his his book that just came out, Woke Racism, he has this really, really powerful anecdote. It's kind of just a almost a throwaway comment in the book, but it, it made a big effect on me where it's this uh, young guy, young African-American man who's – talking um he's living in in a very dangerous neighborhood in chicago and he says to this reporter he says you know i'm just so frustrated right now he goes the 
the homicide rate for like so many of my friends and cousins and you know one of my brothers and people I went to school with have been killed in the violence but he goes if a if a white cop shoots me this afternoon it's going to be like national news and there's going to be demonstrations and everything but if i get killed by you know another black guy in my neighborhood uh none of you are going to come nobody's going to care when in fact like it is way way more likely like way more likely that i'm going to get killed and why is nobody doing anything about that? And he wasn't in any way kind of excusing violence from the police. And, you know, and I don't think anybody reasonable would do that. He's just saying like, and immediately when I read that, I thought, oh, that's like one of the seven things. So basically the the media covering these neighborhoods, they're only going to cover certain stories coming out of those neighborhoods, right? Yeah. Which fit, which are one of the seven things, right? And the thing is, is everybody's doing it, right? Or almost everybody. Like the Fox News crowd, they're only coming to a university, you know, to get one kind of story. Oh, you know, campus craziness, right? That's all they're they're coming to see. They're not coming to hear a speech on really interesting stuff that's happening in microbiology right now. Like they're, like they're not, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, to, you know, to bring it back to the book, I think this book is one instance of the seven things. So I'm just, I have it here in my hand. I'm looking at the, the blurbs on the back. There's a short one from NPR that I'll just read. The book to buy for insight into what Trump's rise and rule really mean here and abroad for democracy in our time. I mean, that's going to sell books, right? I mean, less so than, than, than it would have two years ago, but uh, nevertheless, you know, oh, I want to know why Trump rose. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm an opponent of Trump, so I want to find out why Trump rose. And I'm for democracy, and I want to learn what I can do to promote democracy in our time. I don't think the book actually says, it says next to nothing about uh, what what Trump's rise really means. It's Because after all, what is her explanation? You tell me, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think her explanation is what Trump's rise and rule really mean is that there are a bunch of resentful people because they didn't succeed in the meritocracy and they're doing all these irrational things as a result. I don't think that has really much of anything to do with, with why Trump rose. So this, this book is a kind of fantasy. And it's a popular fantasy for the reason that you're mentioning with the, the seven stories is there are, there's a big market of people out there who want to read a book that's going to make them feel like they're on the side of reason and, and these nasty people are on the side of, of irrationality. And, and all we need to do is just double down on, on the meritocracy. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's so many problems just inherent to that. Like I know... Uh, one of them that uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about this great deal in his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, understanding why good people are divided by politics and religion. And he says that there is, I mean, this is a very robust result that's been found in a lot of psychological studies, that if you have test subjects in playing a, a rigged game that is rigged for them to win, uh, and if you ask them, you know, but they don't, you know, they don't know that it's rigged. If you ask them, you know, is this a rigged game? They will overwhelmingly tell you, uh, no, this is, uh, this is totally fair. And I'm, I'm winning because I just have like a really good technique and, you know, I've, I, yeah. they'll, they'll attribute it to their own merit. And then if you yeah. ask people who are losing in that rigged game, uh, do you think the game is fair? They'll, uh, very often say, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I think there's something up. I think it's rigged. It just it, something's yeah. fishy about this. I'm not sure what it is, but it doesn't. This doesn't seem like 
like a likely result. Like, you know, it doesn't. So, uh, you know, generally speaking, people who are winning in any kind of game, you know, even a meritocratic game, right? Uh, of course, they're going to tell you. I mean, like, like this is, it, it's funny that she doesn't even acknowledge that that might be the case. Of course, they're going to tell you that they've been successful because of their merit. They're not going to, right? So, yeah, yeah. That, that is it. That is an issue, right? Yeah. Well, she's focused not on the winners. She doesn't talk to them. She talks to the losers or she tries to at any rate. And then when they won't talk back to her, she just assumes, well, that's because they're so resentful and they can't handle the truth. <laughs> uh, you know, so then what, what is to me that says, oh, well, what kind of friend are you exactly? Your old friends don't even want to talk to you and explain themselves to you. You know, when you ask them ostensibly the question, tell me, tell me what's going on. I, I mean, I just see a pattern throughout the book of here are a bunch of people who just they can't they can't bother anymore to talk to her because she's not interested in what they have to say. Yeah, well, it's, it seems to me if I just look at because I, I, I thought about that a great deal. Like I have friends who you know, where there's a huge amount of difference between us and in, in our views on politics and religion and other things, and we can still get along. And so I was tr- trying to figure, figure out, like, well, why can we get along? Like, what are we doing that she's not doing? You know, maybe. But it seems yeah. to me that what um, what's happening most of the time, I mean, I, I, I have to guess from their end, obviously, but I can see from yes. my end. What's happening is that we're just deciding to to talk about different things and there's so many things to talk about that are that don't necessarily that aren't like political necessarily right there's uh, such an unbelievably human existence is so beautiful and complicated and fascinating and interesting and the world is so is like seemingly endlessly fascinating so there's so many things yeah. to talk about and then you can also just enjoy the human warmth and company of just, you know, enjoying somebody else's company and and enjoying to sort of just uh, see how somebody else's mind works and how somebody else is seeing the world. It's like kind of almost like in a Schopenhauerian, like, hey, hello, fellow sufferer. Let's like compare notes. (laughs) Like, how are you doing? You know, like, um, and there's so many other things that you can uh, connect to, you know, without going in and it seems to me like that the the only time that that's been a real problem for me where where it's become a barrier that was insurmountable was when somebody had become just consumed by their political identity you know just like to the point where they were like you know the plastics guy and the graduate it's like that's the only thing they can talk about that's the only they bring it up at every dinner party they bring it up like all the time it's like uh I mean, one of the most obnoxious New York Times commercials I've ever heard. It was only on for about a month. And I guess I suspect that a lot of people complained about it. So they took it off. But it played during the current, uh, usually the New York Times morning podcast. And not the current, um, the daily. I'm thinking of the Canadian one. Uh, but And it, it said it was... Uh, it was this one kind of New York Times writer. And she said, you know, people sometimes ask me, like, you know, why are you always talking about race? And she said, because everything's about race. And yeah, I thought, right. I thought, oh my <laughs> God, like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. this is just, this is a thing. And I don't know what you think about this, but I, I, I kind of have interest in a number, not like you in a number of different fields that I, I kind of, I'm fascinated by. And I've in, let's say like the sciences, like the life sciences, 
uh, specifically in biology, which I'm really, really into a number of branches of biology. But like, I've never met, I've never met a biologist who specializes in, let's say, moss or trees or uh, salamanders or like, I don't know, wolves or whatever. I've never met somebody like that who thinks that the only thing worth seeing in the forest is, is that thing that they study. Like they just all kind of recognize that there's so much going on in the forest and there's so many different things worthy of study and interesting and, and all the interconnections between them. And so, yeah, this is the piece of it that, you know, really kind of grabs me and I'm, I've, I've drilled down deep on that and I've, you know, been devoted the last 20 years of my life to trying to figure this thing out. But they don't for a second think that that's the only thing worth studying or worth knowing about. Or Whereas I find this tendency in the humanities and the social sciences, I regularly encounter people who the one mode of analysis, whether it be like, I don't know, gender analysis or like race analysis or a class analysis or you know, it could be anything really. Um, they really say, they really think that that is like everything. That's the whole world. It's like a kind of a ancient Greek monism or something. It's like, it's a weird sort of, <laughs> I mean, what do you, what do you think's going on with that? Oh, well, I mean, just, uh, just thinking at the, right at that moment of, of, of an example from my own career, there's so many examples, but a, a recent one is I teach a course on the American constitution and the debates between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in the crafting of the Constitution and the ways that they refer back to ancient sources. So really two-thirds of the course is on ancient sources so that we can understand what they're referring to when they talk about Plutarch's, you know, uh, Caesar or whatever. Um, and when I submit, I, I, that course is cross-listed in, in several humanities departments. And when I, it has to be approved each time. And when I submit it, we're already reading like almost 100 pages a day. <laughs> Uh, in that course, which is too much for an undergraduate course as it is. And when I submit it for approval, the the critique I always get back is, you know, well, where is the day or, you know, where, where are you going to talk about race or where are you going to, where are you going to talk about gender or where are the female authors and, and where are the black authors and so on. And, you know, and, and I say to them, all right, well, take a look at the syllabus and tell me what you're going to take out so that I can put those things in. And, you know, at that point, they've, they've got other things to do, so they move on. But for me, it's a real question because I don't think I can teach that course as it is by changing it in the ways that they want and accomplish the goals of the course, which is to talk about these, these ancient sources. Anyway, that was just an association because I've had this experience many, many times, as I think anybody in the humanities has, where courses are, have become homogeneous, definitely in the last 10 years of whatever the topic, it's going to be that topic, gender and race. Yeah. And and what's fascinating about that is that, you know, you're, you and I are the same age. And I, I remember when I was sort of a teenager, early 20s, the only people that I knew personally that were in educational institutions like that were my friends who were in Bible college. You know, like, a, you know, going to like, you know, Eastern Pentecostal Bible College in Peterborough, you know, Ontario and stuff like that. And so these were very, very kind of fundamentalist Christian institutions. And they would ask the question, you know, of every topic, you know, how 
does this relate to salvation and Jesus? And so that would like the, they would want like a math class, a biology class to right. always somehow, you know, begin with, right. a, begin with a prayer. I guess now it would be a land acknowledgement. I uh, begin with right. like a prayer, begin with like a, a religious saying, okay, here's what we're here for. And uh, to sort of bracket what's happening and then to try and always bring it back to, to Jesus somehow and bring it back to those things. And, you know, sometimes that would be, fairly obvious and straightforward, but sometimes it would be a real stretch. It's like if you're talking you're about, right. yeah, like if you're talking about a, a class on uh, the water cycle, you know, and, and you're talking about how like water gets evaporated and goes up and becomes clouds and then it rains down. And then, you know, if you're talking about the water cycle, it's not totally obvious how you're going to link that to your Christian values, right? But they would, yeah. in these very tortured and, you know, kind of embarrassing ways they would they would do it, right? And now it yeah. seems like that's happening in all these secular institutions. So there's like, you know, emails going out to chemistry departments and to math departments saying like, how are you, you know, dealing with diversity issues and with yeah. social justice issues in your chemistry class? And like these chemistry teachers, I was talking to one of my colleagues and she was just saying like, Look, I you know I went to all the BLM protests. I'm I've been a feminist my whole life. I'm totally like on the left, but this is fucking bullshit. Like, how am I supposed to like? She's like, how am I supposed? To, it's a chemistry class. Like, how am I supposed to kind of bring trans issues into my chemistry class? Like, it's it's. If I may interject, yeah, yeah, can I, yeah, can I go with that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we both agree that that's, that's happening. That's happening more and more. That's happening in disciplines and, and in subject matters where it just has no relevance. And I agree with you completely about the quasi-religious character of the whole thing. Now, if you think of that, that's a feature of universities now and that that's been going on for some time, it's just getting more and more intense. Well, think of the universities now as these are the institutions in a, in a liberal democratic society, and Applebaum would accept this, that are supposed to be the truth-oriented institutions so that the political discussion that you know she considers to be civil can be oriented towards the truth. Well, wait a second. If they've been captured by a quasi-religious ideology and subjects that are not even relevant to that quasi-religious ideology are being filtered now through the quasi-religious ideology, well, now the university becomes disconnected from truth and it becomes more about those that quasi-religious ideology. So, you know, to connect it up in a, in, a, in a broad sweep that, you know, we can fill in the details later if we want, but to connect it up with what I was saying earlier about the Polish example, you can imagine these Polish politicians saying, all right, well, you know, we send these generals to American academies with, with a, on, on the government dime, it's very expensive, and they come back and they're really good about talking about gender and, and race theory, but, you know, look at the the, the military that they're coming from that just lost these two catastrophic wars. So, you know, we don't want them. We want generals to win wars, not ones that are up on the latest gender and race theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that could definitely that could definitely be it. I mean, one of the I, I, it's funny. I I don't know why I keep going back to Markowitz, but Mar, Markowitz in his book The Meritocracy Trap, and I, I thought about this just when you were saying that. Uh, he says that um, the real sort of kind of obsession with uh, with discrimination and with very you know various kinds of for sexual orientation race gender um, all that stuff that that the reason why the meritocracy are the 21st century merit- meritocrats are so 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 fixated 
on these kinds of discrimination is because those are those are the ones that most clearly go to their their core kind of raison d'être. They're like they those if those things are true, then the meritocratic system is not actually letting the cream rise to the top because people are being stopped because of these barriers. And so they focus on that a great deal. But he said what seems really hypocritical to people who are outside of that system is that it's not as if, you know, these like rural rubes with mega hats on or, you know, the Polish nationalists or something like It's not as if they don't recognize um, bigotry as being like a vice, as being like a flaw. Of course they do. Of course they recognize that that's, but they, they have a much kind of fuller palette of virtues and vices. And so for them, bigotry is just one of many different vices. And they would say, well, why are you totally focusing on this one vice and you're completely ignoring things like greed and you know selfishness and all these other things that like that the meritocrats do constantly that you right. can do in silk. Yeah, I would say cowardice is the main example. Yeah, and that that you can somehow they act like there's there's only one um, there's there's only one vice <laughs> in the world, and if we can focus on this one, everything. And he said, you know, it's it's understandable why it might look a little bit self serving. Yeah, like yeah, you, you focus yeah. on one particular thing, you know, to, you know, to kind of uh, avoid avoid seeing that there's much more much more things going on there, right? That you you kind of cover up your sins by, you know, right? Me think yeah. she protesteth too much. I mean, what do what do you think yeah. about that? Sure. sure. Well, so a couple things. I think your religious analysis is appropriate here, where you know a new quasi-religion is coming to replace an old kind of, well, an actual religion. And so as a result, a whole new set of vices and virtues is coming to displace an older set of vices and virtues. Let me focus on another example from the book. You know, I've got dozens that I was prepared to to talk about. I've only mentioned the one of the Polish generals. I don't want to sound like a one-trick pony. Here's another. So she complains that the Polish government, this law and justice party, uh, promoted uh, what she calls a homophobic message that was given by the Bishop of Krakow. And even though, as she says, YouTube had deemed it hate speech. So I haven't read the speech. I don't know whether it's homophobic or not, but you know, there, there, there's a way of understanding Catholic doctrine where it's not homophobic exactly. That's another question. But at any rate, even if it were, this, I think this example makes very clear that she, she's complaining about this. She's effectively saying the Polish people should recognize the Pope of YouTube above the Pope of Rome. <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. So she's she's assuming that that YouTube, that the way in yeah. which they deem something hate speech is a completely kind of meritocratic, accurate. just democratic, yep. accurate process. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The Supreme yep. Court has decided this is hate speech. No, it's yeah. like some algorithm run by a 25-year-old in San Francisco like right. decided it was hate speech. Yeah. Okay, I right. see, yeah. Yeah, there're just moments like this throughout the book where it's just mind-boggling that she that she would sit with there's no self-awareness that 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 she's replacing sort of one set of values with another but claiming this to be neutral. 
Yeah. I had a, a situation on YouTube where they, they removed one of my videos as hate speech. Uh, Facebook did as well. And it was basically, it was a reading of Tony Hoagland's poem, Dear John. And the thing is, um, is uh, and Tony Hoagland's poem is, and it's because he uses the word like faggot. In the, but if you actually read the poem, the poem is like one of the, it's the exact opposite of homophobic or hate speech. He's he's talking about, you know, meeting somebody who, it was a poem about a real friend of his and how like when he first met him, he he really liked him. Like he really kind of, he found him really interesting and wanted to be friends with him. And so he was doing what socially awkward people often do when they're nervous. They just kind of talk incessantly and make dumb jokes, you know, because they're just, you know, being weird. And he, he, the poem begins like, you know, I never would have told, I never would have told that faggot joke if I had known that John was gay, (laughs) but he forgave me and he allowed me to be his friend, you know, and if I may be sort of patriotic about myself, there's something democratic about being the occasional asshole. You apologize, (laughs) uh, and everybody else breathes a little bit easier, like in any way, and it goes into this whole, but it's, it's actually an incredibly sweet and loving poem about people kind of finding friendship and and forgiving each other for, you know, gaffes and stupidity. It's very humane and nice. But because of the use of that one word, it triggered an algorithm and they said that it was hate speech, which, yeah, I definitely would not trust them if I was the, the Polish people to be sort of deciding what is hate speech or not. Yeah, well, first of all, you don't trust them because, as you say, most of the time it's just algorithms. But even when they step in and make a personal decision, which I assume happened in the case of the Bishop of Krakow, presumably that went up the chain of command and, and somebody you know near the top made that decision. Whoever's right and wrong, if it's just a matter of who's our authority, should we? I mean, the Polish people are saying we're going to trust the Bishop of Krakow rather than, you know, some exec in in Palo Alto. Mm hmm. And and Applebaum doesn't see doesn't see that 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 um, calling that bigotry and so on is is pro- is a problem. She seems to think, as we've said already, if if YouTube deems something hate speech, well then it's got to be hate speech. So so much for the Bishop of Krakow. <laughs> as if that's a real as if that's a realistic position to take in Poland. Like that that that'll work now in Ireland, for example, but it just it's not going to work in Poland, at least not at the present moment. Yeah, it's like telling telling you know American politicians that want to get elected, like yeah, be open about the fact that you're an atheist. Yeah, well, that's not going to work. So yeah, right. <laughs> it's right. like right. you know, there's right. so you you say among your many criticisms, you say that uh, Applebaum's thinking about democracy is simplistic. And yeah. what do you mean by that? Yeah, I was actually thinking of going there next because that line in Hoagland's poem about uh, about democracy. How did it go? Democracy required that I forgive that crude joke. Oh, and if I may say, if I may so so say so without being patriotic about myself, there is something democratic about being the occasional asshole. You apologize, yeah. <laughs> and everybody breathes a little bit easier. You know, meaning yeah. like we all feel like okay, frailty and faults and are going to be okay, we can get past them, we can apologize, and we can forgive each other, and it doesn't have to be like a cancelable event. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'll I'll try not to be too much of a nerd here and rein me in if I am, but here's a book called Twilight of Democracy, so you'd expect there to be some, you know, philosophical or, uh, you know, trying to be philosophical thought about democracy, or at least some 
explanation of what it is that we're talking about never happens. <laughs> and the sign that her understanding of democracy is simplistic is she thinks the two choices are democracy and autocracy. And that comes through in the subtitle, uh, Twilight of Democracy, the Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, which is her synonym for autocracy. So there are two choices. We can be ruled by the many or we can be ruled by the one. <laughs> and just in a simple matter of uh, numerology, not to mention Aristotle's politics, there are three choices. How There's about the few? <laughs> There's the few. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oligarchy. And again, that's I don't think I'm just being a nerd here because the analysis of the liberal democracies that I accept is that we're actually living in oligarchies that pretend to be democracies. So when someone says we need to preserve democracy and they're talking about England, Canada, United States, and so on, that the classic liberal democracies, what they're actually, what they actually mean is we need to defend oligarchy that's pretending to be democracy, which we can get into, but I just want to connect it up with the critique I've been making about meritocracy. There's this set of institutions, the universities especially, which are there to filter and select the people who will run the oligarchy and who, you know, in some cases get elected and in, in many cases operate in the civil service or in the law and so on, which is the actual government, the thing that thing where things actually happen. And Applebaum doesn't seem to recognize that at all. I mean, in other words, I think this critique that she's missed oligarchy is the other side of the critique I've been making that she doesn't understand that the meritocracy is fake. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's an excellent point. There's, um, my friend Alex Finetti recommended this podcast, which I, I, I recommend to you and to actually to all of our listeners. It's called uh, Meltdown, or maybe The Meltdown. Uh, it's on. Uh, it's it's one of those things you get with your Audible membership for free. You know, one of the many. But it's really, really, really well done. But it it constructs a very different narrative to try and explain the rise of Trump and the rise of, you know, these kinds of populist uh, authoritarians and stuff like that. So what what they argue in the that podcast series, which is, I think it's like, I don't know, eight or nine episodes. Each one's like about half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that. But it's it looks at what happened with the financial crash in 2008, 2009. And they yes. make the argument that, you know, the... Democracy works, representative democracy works if people feel like there's real choices and that the people in charge can actually like fix problems. And so they they go back and forth between the response of the Democratic Party, you know, at the beginning of the Great Depression in the 1930s, and then the response of the Obama administration. And it is just completely like I I don't know. I, I think I generally speaking have pretty even tempered when it comes to to anger. I don't get really angry often. But this podcast, I actually got so angry listening to this podcast that I had to stop it numerous times and just take like a day or two break. And I had to go because I was I was shaking like with rage listening to this thing. There were a lot of things that a lot of information there that I didn't that I hadn't heard before. And I actually thought, okay, this is bullshit. And I went and like looked it up to see if it was true. And it was all true. It was all completely true. It was not, you know, interpretation. It was fact. But just how the um, the Obama administration completely just 
bent over backwards to help out the banks, to help out Wall Street, and actively screwed over, like, the little guy, you know, the little people, like, and, yeah. and, and in ways that were actually at times sadistic. Like, there was this one program that they set up, and it was a program to try and, like, help people, or supposedly to help people to not default on their mortgages by giving them these, like, special arrangements. But in fact, the everybody knew, including the people in the Obama administration and the banks, that this was nothing but, uh, like, a scam, that what they were doing was trying to flatten the curve. You know, they, we've heard about that a lot with the pandemic, but they were trying to flatten the curve of how many people were... Uh, basically declaring bankruptcy and foreclosing, you know, people who were like losing their homes and stuff like that. And so they wanted yes. to, they wanted to stretch out uh, like how many people were losing their homes rather than having it happen all in like one or two months. They wanted to stretch it, it out riots. to yeah one or two years. And so they yeah. set up these programs that just were set up to fail like all of those people involved in those programs ended up losing losing their homes anyway and it was just this incredibly sadistic sick thing where you were like they ended up getting charged tons of fees and late fees and a lot of people you know developed severe substance abuse problems a lot of people committed suicide it was so traumatic for these people and this is what the party of the people did right and so the the argument they make is that um, that you know the reason why you get Trump is because people are just absolutely furious, and they feel like the oligarchs running the show are completely in league with each other, and they're using these like spurious these issues. Uh, you know, culture war issues, like, you know, whether it be like flag burning or school prayer or abortion or trans rights, they're using these things as a fig leaf to cover what's really going on, which is that they actually are completely on the same page on most things. On the important mm -hmm. stuff, you know, the, where the, the money issues, they're actually on the same page. They are kind of interlocking you know, oligarchs, like elites that uh, agree, go to the, I mean, go to the same schools, go to the same country clubs and things like that. And that that's actually the real, and it, he has this just amazing clip from a radio address, uh, or no, it was a speech that FDR gave. And FDR was uh, sort of uh, saying, you know, I have heard that the, the moneyed power in this country has spent $28 million trying to defeat me in this election. Uh, it appears that they hate me. Well, hear this now, my friends on Wall Street. I welcome your hatred. <laughs> like, and then he, and he clips from that to Hillary Clinton responding to the fact that she gave three speeches 650 grand each to Goldman Sachs and saying, well, what's the problem? They're good people. They well, <laughs> they're yeah. we're just talking, you know, like, and, and Obama just constantly chumming up with, and, and at that point, you know, the point is, is like people went for FDR instead of, you know, fascist or communist revolution because he was offering them an actual alternative. He was offering them actual, here's government working for you. And I'm actually on your side. And a lot of people after the financial crisis felt like, oh, my God, the Republicans, the Democrats, 
they're not on my, none of them are on my side. Right? It was like, back to business as usual. Yeah. And so they, when Trump comes along and says the system's rigged, a lot of people nod their head. And they say, like, yeah, you know, I, I give lots of money to these people. Trust me, when I call them, they answer my calls immediately. And you call them, you'll never hear from them. They're never going to call you back. They answer to money. That's what they answer to. And a lot of people just, that kind of cynicism was, uh, people were were all into it at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, FDR is a whole a whole other subject that I'm, I'm tempted to, uh, Tempted to talk about, but I guess one thing I want to say about oligarchy is that there, there are at least two senses in which I mean that. One is the kind of people that you're referring to and that FDR was referring to. Let's call them the 500, you know, the, 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 the really rich and influential people who are pulling a lot of strings. There's that. I think that's real. Um, but there's also, and this is sort of my more my concern because this touches more upon my life, there are the elites in quotation marks. So the, you know, this includes the professors and, and the media. And, you know, I don't want to get too narcissistic and talk about professors because I'm a professor and you're a professor. But on the other hand, it's what we know best. And this sense of oligarchy is, uh, it's more nebulous. I think sort of we have a narrative for the 500, you know, they're the greedy, you know, they're, they're uh, you, know, you know, funding the politicians who are just doing what they want. So on like the Cokes or whatever. Uh, probably a lot of names that we don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm I'm more interested in these elites, the cultural elites, who are crafting the ideologies that the 500 can use as fronts. So I think that you know, take what we were saying about the the role of gender and race in the humanities. It, I, I'm now becoming very skeptical of what's actually going on there. I mean, I think there are a lot of well-meaning people who think that they're, you know, uh, creating uh, a more just environment. I think that uh, at least what I was hearing and what you were saying from McWhorter uh, was, you know, I, do I even remember exactly what you're saying from McWhorter? What, what I imagine McWhorter saying at any rate was that uh, a lot of the rhetoric of anti-racism is not doing any good uh, for, you know, a lot of his friends who were getting killed. Um, in black on black crime, mm-hmm. such that, the, in other words, I think there are a lot of well-meaning people who think that they're doing good with the, these theories and the way in which they're using these theories to talk about everything. But if McWhorter and those style of critiques is cor- is correct, which I think it is, nothing actually good is coming out of this. Then my question is, well, why is it happening exactly? Who whom does this serve? And there are all kinds of theories. I don't know which one to decide between about. You know, the way in which, for example, identity politics fractures uh, solidarity among people who might actually unite and create a more uh, just economic system. I, I find that persuasive. I'm not yet determined uh, in my own mind that that's true. Yeah, it's funny what you're saying. It reminds me so much of uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's critique of the philosophers in Emile, where he says... Um, how does he put it again? It's like uh, every particular society, when it is narrow and unified, is estranged from the all-encompassing society. Every patriot is harsh to foreigners. Uh, they are only men. Uh, they are nothing in his eyes. This is a drawback, inevitable, but not compelling. The essential thing is to be good to the people with whom one lives. Distrust those cosmopolitans who go to great lengths in their books to discover duties they do not deign to fulfill around them. A philosopher loves the Tartars so as to be spared having to love his neighbors. 
right? Mm-hmm. So the if you replace Tartars with you know whatever the sacred vic- yeah. victim of the moment is, it's very often like okay, I, 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 you know, I, I get frustrated sometimes. I, I recognize it's it's well intended, and so I don't want to be too harsh on it. But I get frustrated sometimes when my students, for instance, uh, will be going on these like class trips where they're building wells in sub-Saharan Africa or in some like uh, poor Latin American country or, or going somewhere and they have their Facebook cover photo. Oh, here's me with the villagers. You know, how long were you right. there? Oh, four days. Uh, you know, right. and I think like, okay, that's a, that's a good and virtuous thing. And I'm glad that you're doing it. And I don't want to like in any way kind of shit on virtue, but at the same time, we have like half of the native reservations in Canada right now don't have clean drinking water and don't right. have regular garbage disposal. We have homeless people like all over our streets in Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver and increasingly in even smaller cities. Um, so why are you going like why are you going to these exotic places to fix everybody's problems when you have problems like right in your own city? Like you could go and like volunteer at a soup kitchen and a church near your house and like you could help people. And and not only would that be really good and virtuous and helpful, that would also help to like connect you in a real way to your neighbors. Right. But we, we increasingly don't do that. It's like, you know, they're, I don't know, the, the educated elite prefers more exotic victims, I guess, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, maybe just shifting the topic and this could, this could get difficult. I don't know where you are on the pandemic and the various measures. Um, But I've, I've thought a lot about masks in the last few months because my university has a mask mandate. I don't know about yours. We do. Yeah. Okay. Except it's, it's a special thing. It's like, so in, I don't know about you, but like in, in my classrooms, my students all have to, everybody has to wear masks when you're walking around the halls. Uh, but then mm-hmm. when you're inside the classroom, the students have to wear a mask, but um, the prof doesn't. So I can take yeah. my mask off to teach because, you know, the, basically profs like freaked out when they, they're like, there's no way I'm teaching through a mask. That's crazy. And so uh, we're allowed to take off our masks, but they have to keep them on. So what's it like yeah. at yours? Yeah. Uh, it's that, except that I have to wear the, the props have to wear the masks as well. And it, it's, I'm, 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 I'm proud of Canadians. If, if the Canadian props said, this is crazy because <laughs> nobody's saying that, uh, at least at my university, or maybe I'm the only one wow. at any rate, my, I have several objections to this. I mean, one is just a general objection about mask mandates at the, you know, I know there are conflicting studies, but there was this massive study done in, in Bangladesh about various towns where various mask mandates happened or didn't happen. And the effect was nil. So uh, I, I take that as in, in, very, very interesting. At the time when I saw that in September, that was touted as the, the largest study that had been done thus far. But, you know, even if that weren't true, uh, I have seen a consensus around the fact that the N95 masks are actually effective and the KN95s less so and, and, and everything else is useless. So there's that. Then there's the fact that the university, mine, I think at this point is 95% vaccinated. So there's a question of what, why are we doing this if we're, if we're already vaccinated? And it doesn't make sense to me. And we can get into details. I know there are objections. I have responses and so on. This could go on forever. But I started thinking, especially while I was teaching Foucault, like what is actually going on here? This isn't actually for safety. So what's the benefit? And 
I think, again, not to say that any administrator is consciously thinking, you know, twiddling their thumbs like Mr. Burns, like this is what I'm going to achieve through this. I think Foucault's right that these things happen through more subterranean social mechanisms, but that what that mask mandate does on my campus, the actual effect I've seen is that it immediately identifies who will cooperate and who won't cooperate with authority. So that we now have a demonstrable symbol that everybody can see of who isn't willing to go along. And I think that's happening all over the place in so many ways. I mean, I think that that gender and race thing that I mentioned was sort of one way, a milder way in which that happens to to professors. But I think that kind of thing, whether it's masks, gender and race ideology and humanities, you know, there are half a dozen examples that we could talk about pretty quickly, uh, ways in which we're expected to conform so that, you know, you're teaching different subjects. They all have to be told and all the stories have to be told in this, in this one way, or, you know, Hey, there are situations in which you don't need a mask. No, on campus, we all wear masks all the time uh, in every indoor space. Something weird is happening. seems to me something weird, some kind of social pressure for homogenization. I think Foucault is absolutely right about that. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, I saw this eerie parallel last night. I don't know if, uh, if you've seen this this new show, it's actually um, it stars Michael Keaton of all people, and it's um, he actually is the executive producer of it as well. I think he did some of the directing. It's a show. It's called uh, Dope Sick, and it's all about like the Sacklers and the opioid crisis. And it goes. Yeah. It's. it's it, I mean, all these phenomenal actors are in this show. It's it's a very kind of all star cast. Very, very well written so far. I've seen two, there's only two episodes out so far. But one of the things that kind of like, kind of, I don't know, put my, made my hair stick up straight on my arms when I was like watching this is so the Sacklers are, they managed to finagle this guy who works at the FDA into like giving Oxycontin this very special designation that it's a special kind of opioid that is uh, because it's time release. It's only like, it's not addictive like regular opioids and only, you know, less than 1% of people who take it become addicted. And if you take heroin on a slow drip, you're not going to get addicted. Yeah, exactly. It's so ridiculous. And you can't like what, crush it up and snort it or shoot it. I mean, there's so many other, (laughs) like the time release only works if people take it the way they're supposed to in the, but, but anyway, even the time release didn't really work for chronic pain. So people would wake up in the middle of the night in horrible, horrible pain. And they would say, oh, it actually only, like one pill only lasted for, you know, eight or nine hours. And so they, it goes back to um, to the main guy, the Sackler uh, guy who actually is the kind of person behind Oxycontin and behind the marketing campaign and everything. And he comes up with this brilliant, and you're going you're, you're gonna to understand immediately why I'm like, I was like, ah. He says, oh, let's just call it breakthrough pain. So the way yeah, that we can explain yeah. that our that our thing our medication is not working the way we said it was going to work, Let, we're not going to say okay it actually doesn't work the way we right. said it was going to work. Like so we right. should we should rather than saying uh, one pill is good for twelve hours, we should revise that and say one pill is good for you know six hours or eight hours. No, yeah. we'll just say you have a special condition called breakthrough pain, and so the answer right. is to double your dose. And so they told all the doctors, if, if people have breakthrough pain, 
the response is double the dose. So if they're taking 10 milligrams, change their prescription to 20. If 20, 40. If 40, 80. And they just kept doing this again and again until people were taking, you know, 160 milligram doses of Oxycontin. And they were horribly addicted very quickly, right? And it's, uh, and I thought immediately of like breakthrough infection. It's like, what? Like, that's just, that's like, you know, that's Orwellian. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Orwellian moments in this pandemic. I mean, it just seems to me if someone wasn't red pilled before this pandemic, how can you not be red pilled after the pandemic? I mean, for example, last summer, two summers ago now, uh, in the early stages, this was in May. Do you remember when uh, Jews in New York wanted to have public funerals and they were even willing to have them outside, but de Blasio forbade that. Mm-hmm. But then after George Floyd, May 25th, uh, riots, I'm sorry, not the riots, th- those hadn't happened yet. The protests, those were okay, even though they were much bigger uh, than the than the Jewish funerals yeah. and the Orwellian ways in which that was sold because uh, anti-racism is ap- actually good epidemiology. Well, I mean, the the argument I usually heard was not was not. Uh, they would say, "Well, yes, you know, these things are all really, really important, but anti racism trumps everything else. So even if there is some increased danger from it, doesn't matter because this is worth it." And I I would think you know probably if I was a very like religious Orthodox Hasidic Jew. And I heard that I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, you know, I, I, I think a wedding or a funeral is pretty fucking important too. Like to me, yeah. right. I think it, yeah. it trumps a lot of, like, I think my community would be willing to sort of engage in, you know, take on a little bit of risk in order to, you know, have this public ritual that's incredibly important to us. So why are you, you sort of choosing, well, I mean, the answer is obvious, right? You're choosing the one because you're you're signaling what is the dominant faith at the moment, right? You know? Right. And so actually, that, our our that our, holi- our holidays matter. You know, our holidays yeah. and our our you know you, Christmas holidays are for everybody, but Jewish holidays are just for the Jews. It's like it's a, yeah. anti-racist yeah. holidays are for everybody, but uh, right. you know Jewish holidays are just for Jews. You know. Yeah, or even just funerals for that matter. Yeah. So, you know, we're starting to throw out our, our favorite examples of, you know, you know, blips in the matrix uh, and irrationality in, in the culture and so on. I know you and I could do that all day and, and everybody has their favorites. But, you know, if we have to tie it back to the book, I guess what I want to say is that there's a pattern there, you know, whether it's gender, race, sexuality, uh, and so on, you know, the list that, well, you put it very well, that those holidays are now going to be holidays for everybody, but the other holidays are not. That gives it a kind of religious cast, which we've referred to earlier. And that the pandemic, again, I, I didn't want to just throw that as just a, as, a, as a random complaint, but that once those two start fusing, once that public pressure to conform in very demonstrable ways, like, are you wearing a mask, even when there's really no need for you to be wearing a mask? And the, the new faith uh, matches with that. Well, that's going to be very dangerous then, because now it's, it's going to be, you know, regular belief tests of the sort that are happening. So back to the book, take the YouTube versus the Bishop of Krakow example. I think that these Polish nationalist politicians, and I really don't know the Polish scene very well. I lived there from uh, a month 
20 years ago, you know, before any of this happened. But, you know, I, I get a vivid portrait of it from her book. So I think I can imagine those nationalist politicians sort of see this as a, as a rival religion that is growing in power. It's global, definitely with the reach of the Internet, but also through the reach of American economic and military power. And they that's not their religion. They don't want that religion. They want to resist that religion. And she simply can't see that what she's promoting is a quasi-religion. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's the amazing thing about having a religion is that you know, the vast majority of people who are religious, are like really religious, like they really have a religion, they don't realize that they have a religion. Right. You know, they just right. think they have something that is self-evidently true. It's like you know, I, right. I think Joseph right. Campbell had that wonderful definition of mythology, and he, somebody asked him once to define what is mythology, and he said, "Other people's religion." You know, so <laughs> like your own religion yeah. never seems like it's a religion to you. You're in the same yeah. way that nobody thinks they have an accent. Right. Other yeah. other people yeah. have accents. Right. Other people have bad breath. Right. Other people have like you never sort of hear your own accent or see the way in which like the things that you're saying to somebody who doesn't share your assumptions sound really fucking religious. You know, like they, they but it doesn't. It, it's amazing. I've, I've seen this. Uh, you know, we had a, a discussion at a departmental meeting where somebody just very matter of factly said, well, I don't think. You know, this is a secular institution. I don't think you should be um, covering this in that way. You know, it was it was a topic about uh, Buddhism and yoga and and inviting people to come to a to a Buddhist temple for you know a thing. And we said, ah, I think this is kind of a red flag. I think in a in a secular institution, we shouldn't be inviting people to come to our church or to our, you know, to the Buddhist temple yeah. we go to. Like, yeah, that, that's a, that's a line. And just the look of incredulity on the, the woman's face, like, what? Like, this isn't religion. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. It completely fucking is. Okay. And like, in order to have a pluralistic society, we have to sort of bracket off certain institutions and say, okay, uh, you can't, you have to leave that at the door. Like you can't bring those things in with you because that will just create a very unsustainable situation, you know, but, uh, you know, I mean, but that, but increasingly people, right. Don't recognize it as such. And so I don't know if you heard on the news, uh, I heard it this morning when I was just preparing, but, uh, you know, General Flynn was giving a, a speech in Texas, and he's, oh my god, yeah! Did you hear about that? I, I did. Yeah, yeah wow. and he said, you know, the United States needs to have one religion, right? And it should have like an official religion, and it should have one religion. Uh, and you know, I think it's easy for. I mean, I heard this on the New York Times podcast, uh, you know, the Daily in the morning. So of course they're like kind of wagging their heads, like, oh, can't believe this. But the thing is, a lot of people are saying that some version of that these days including right. the New York Times, right? Yeah, but when yeah, they're saying yeah. it, they don't realize that they're saying it, right? Yeah, but there's, yeah. there is a kind of a, a, a real sort of turn against pluralism. So, well, two things. One is just uh, a historical association that I think you'll like, because I think you even like the tweet where I talked about this, but uh, about not recognizing your own religion as a religion because you actually believe it. Uh, the episode in Tacitus where, um, I forget which emperor it is at this time, has to deal with the Christians and it might be Claudius at any rate, uh, 
calls them haters of humanity. <laughs> and why, why are the Christians considered haters of humanity? It's because they won't perform sacrifices to the Roman gods. Not so much because they're supposed to give up Christianity and worship the Roman gods. Rather, what it is to be a humane human, a lover of humanity, is to generously sacrifice to other people's gods. So that's what the Romans did. You know, they conquered the Gauls. They would make sacrifices to Gaulish, Gallic gods and expect the same thing in return. And these Christians, like the Jews before them, won't sacrifice to our gods. Therefore, they're haters of humanity. Yeah. Uh, there's just no, there's no awareness uh, of, of the, that as well, as we would say, as a religion. Um, the other is that, again, this, this allows me at least to go back to where I kind of fumblingly started from the beginning, which was my basic critique of this book is just the blindness of it. Again, it's, it's not actually showing us anything about Trump's rise, except indirectly. What it is, is an important document, a testimony of how blind the elite class was even in 2021, I mean, it's one thing to be blind in 2015 before this happened, but even at this point to be this blind. Yeah. Only, only a kind of religious faith could maintain that, that blindness. And, and, and of course, still faced with the reality that even if, even if Trump was defeated in, in 2020, uh, there's another figure like that going to rise in the United States and they're, they're, they're still present all over the world. The only explanation Applebaum has is, well, they're crazy. That's, that's it in the end. They're irrational and resentful. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's almost, you know, your critique of the book almost sounds like you think she's sort of like a Mary Antoinette, you know, let them eat cake or something. Like just yeah, no, like, I, I yeah. hadn't thought of that. That's exactly what I think. Yes. They like that yeah. it's you're think, you're clearly think, so out of touch with, you know, what's happening if you think that that's why people are in the middle of a revolution, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's I mean that I mean that brings me back to the Instagram post which I, I vaguely remember now. Um, that I think we're in the midst of a quiet revolution. Let's hope it doesn't become hot. And one of the reasons why it's it's heading in that direction is because the elite just still can't recognize what's happening. Yeah. They can't take the measures that would be needed to actually quell, to, to, to soothe it. Uh, instead, they just start doubling down. Yeah, I think, you know, why that is the case, I, I wrestle with this and I, I can't tell, I think, Partially, it it must have something to do with what's called the big sort, you know that uh, there is right yes, now the right. the elite. It used to be the case that um, geographically speaking, wealthy people were just spread out all over the place, right? And so yes. it, they did not. The whole idea of like a a rich neighborhood just. It, it's a very new, new invention. Generally speaking, wealthy people lived in a big house, you know, maybe on a hill surrounded by a community. And they, you know, they interacted with people of different classes all the time on a daily basis. And they didn't have to, uh, you know, you know, they might have had various, obviously, some prejudices and attitudes, but they, they probably didn't have very many illusions about how other people were living because they hung out with them all the time. They saw them all the time. And, but yeah. increasingly now we have uh, the, this kind of what they call the, I can't remember the sociologist who, who wrote the book, uh, but the, the big sort. And it's, it's about how we increasingly have classes that are very, very, very insular. And it's not just sort of like the 1% and the poor. And it's, it's quite granular. It's like upper middle class people of a yes. certain t- uh, and and they've 
they're engaging in kind of selective mating and stuff like that. And so increasingly you have situations where, and actually once again, that guy Markowitz goes over all this data very, very well, that increasingly you have situations where lawyers uh, will tell you on surveys that, you know, let's say like, you know, 75% of their friends that they hang out with on a regular basis are other lawyers. And doctors hang around with other doctors, professors hang around with other professors, bankers, and yes. so on and so forth. So it's quite yes. granular. So you have more and more people who just hang out with people who are very, very similar to them and similar yes. class background to them. And the higher you go up the class, the the more likely this is to be the case. And so that is just a recipe for blindness, for just being completely clueless and not knowing. I mean, there's the, as it turns out, I think it was apocryphal, but it still is just wonderful. You know, the, the famous um, apocryphal conversation where somebody asked this famous film critic in New York City, like, you know, how do you think Nixon won? And she said, I have no idea. I don't know anybody who voted for him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah. you know, and it's increasingly, if you don't have like friends and family members who, let's say, voted for Trump or who are, you know, whatever, going through different things, you can have some incredibly silly ideas about the other side when you don't know anybody from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I think, again, a merit of this book is that it begins and end with two parties. I think ultimately this is a social phenomenon and that the reason why she can't understand people on the other side is that she's not friends with them anymore. And it seems perhaps that ideological conformity was a condition of the friendship in the first place. Yeah. Well, she actually pushes back on the idea that I just laid out um, in a number of places in the book where she says, you know, there are those who say that uh, that people who have very bigoted ideas about their political opponents, it's because they don't know anybody from the other side. And she said, actually, yeah. she said the truth is so much more gross than that. Uh, she goes, the truth is some of the most like overtly homophobic, anti-gay uh, Pol- Polish politicians I know have like a gay son or like a, a daughter who's a lesbian or have like a trans nephew or a trans, you know, yeah. like, and they have, this is actually inter warfare that they, you know, they have like an ex-wife who's like, you know, really woke or whatever. And they, that's like a lot of their animus is very, very personal. And so the idea that, that somehow just, um, you know, what's the word for it in political science? I think they call it uh, the, you know, if you just kind of mix people together with like busing and things like that, you if you put people together that they will all get along because, you know, they'll be seeing each other on a regular basis. And Applebaum yes. seems to be saying that, no, actually, uh, familiarity can sometimes breed some pretty nasty contempt and, and that yeah. often the animus they have towards the other side is quite personal. Like they actually, they do know, they do have a crazy uncle who posts crazy Trump shit all the time and like, yeah, they stole the election and like, you know, like, so I don't know. What what do you think about that? Well, I remember that passage, if you're thinking of the same passage, I remember it differently. So there's certainly a lot of passages, and and I think this is probably what you're talking about now that I think about it, where she wants to explain the 
other side, let's call them, as just resentful. And where does that resentment come from? I may not be remembering the passages you're remembering where she explains it as as personal animus. Well, actually, I do. I mean, just people who didn't get jobs they felt they were entitled to under the old regime and so on. But the passage I'm remembering about the gay son or even Laura Ingraham's adoption of three immigrant children, um, Applebaum actually gets psychoanalytic there, which was a surprise to me, which is why I remember it. She says, you, you might be surprised that they have these nativist policies, even though they have immigrant children, or that they have these homophobic views, even though they have gay children. And her psychoanalytic explanation is because, uh, take Ingraham and Trump, uh, the explanation is because she's so ashamed of his anti-immigrant uh, stances because she herself has three, then she has to defend him all the more. So it's like a, a reaction formation is the psychoanalytic term that, you know, even though you want X uh, and you can't get X, so you're going to say why it is that you, 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 I don't even know if I'm, <laughs> just take, take, take me away. I think I was about to make a mistake. Yeah, well, it's a, uh, here's the passage right here. She says, um, I happen to know that some of these ex-friends are estranged from their children because of their political views. In yeah. a couple of cases, the estrangement is profound. One of my former friends, though deeply committed to a political party with an openly homophobic agenda, has a gay son. But that is all too typical. These divides run through families as well as groups of friends. We have a neighbor near Chilobalin whose parents listen to a pro-government Catholic conspiratorial radio station called Radio Maria. They repeat its mantras, make its enemies their enemies. Um, I've lost my mother, my neighbor told me. She lives in another world, right? And so it says that actually, you know, very often these things are dividing. And she has that wonderful bit in the conclusion where she draws a parallel to the Dreyfus affair, which I thought was like one of the best parts of the whole book and how the, in the same way that um, the Dreyfus affair in France split French society in two. And regardless of the evidence, people were uninterested. You know, Dreyfus was completely innocent, but people didn't care about the facts. What they cared was uh, you had to, it's like, you know, sort of like you saw this with with Trump in a really big way, where he would say things that were openly, openly bullshit. And I would see people like what you're saying with like people who puts on the masks to see who will conform and who will yes. listen. People would just repeat the points, and I would yes. ask them, "I'm like, do you actually fucking believe this? Do you actually believe yeah. that was the biggest crowd size ever?" Okay, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, I do. And they believed it like Tertullian. Like, I believe it because it's absurd. It's like, I, I, I believe it because this has become a loyalty test. And to, I have like, you know, friends and family members who absolutely insist that the election was stolen. And if you ask them, like, but all of the Trump-appointed Republican officials in your state have reviewed all the evidence and said that, this is bullshit. And they say, well, I just can't believe that the Democrats got to them. Like, there's nothing you can tell them. They're just, they're absolutely, their ears are, are shut. They will not listen. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're dealing with, in, in both instances, quasi-religious phenomena, as we, as we discussed earlier. But let's, let's, let's focus on the Dreyfus affair. Um, I had a different uh, interpretation of that part of the book than you did. So, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. But that you, as I understood you to be presenting it, 
according to you, Applebaum is presenting the two sides, the Dreyfusards and the anti-Dreyfusards, as both disconnected with reality, uh, both in their own kind of quasi-religious devotion to the, the cause, independent of what the facts are. And it just so happened to turn out that he was innocent. Oh, no, 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 no. She she oh, okay. says she says that the, the anti-Dreyfusards were the ones who were... Um, anti, you know, pro fake news, you know, anti facts, um, and that the pro Dreyfusards, so that's, yeah, that's right. but but the, that's what I remember. Yes, her account yes. is that the the anti Dreyfusards were in the quasi religious uh, separation from facts, uh, belief tests, and so on. The Dreyfusards were the proponents of objective truth. You know, she goes on in later context to add science, reason, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes. So there's you're clearly the good side and the bad side. Absolutely, and it's. It's easy to tell that story. I don't know enough about the Dreyfus Severe to say whether this is the true story or not. I mean, I believe that he was innocent. That seems to be the consensus. But the first account that I gave that I thought you were giving is 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 possible. Namely, people were Dreyfusards not because they'd given a thorough review of the evidence and 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 shown that he was innocent or you know they 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 read books and books about it, but rather they were part of social circles that were Dreyfusard circles, and so their devotion to Dreyfusard. The Dreyfusard cause was just as irrational as the devotion to the anti-Dreyfusard uh, cause in the case of the anti-Dreyfusards. Oh, I, I, mean? I get. Oh, I, I totally see what you mean, and I and, yeah. and we see that we see that in the news all the time, where there will be uh, a conflict between two different people, and just based on the the identities of the two people involved, that regardless right. of any of the facts, that that is the deciding factor of whether huge swaths of the public side with one or the other. You know, and, yeah. and, and there are these funny situations where they sort of get it wrong, right? So they think that, they think that this person is, I don't know, a, a straight white male guy over here, and they think that this person is a member of like an oppressed you know, person of color or something like that, and then they find out that it's actually flipped. And then there's this kind of cognitive dissonance where they decide... Uh, sometimes they decide to just completely ignore the thing altogether. Okay, that's not one of the seven things. We're not going to talk about that now. Right, uh, right. But Or what they do is they just completely flip their allegiance to the other side and act like they were always <laughs> on that side. And I've, yeah, I've actually right. – I've, I've shown people like their tweets and posts and said, you literally said the opposite thing three days ago. And they're like, yeah. oh, no, I didn't. Right, and then they go and delete it afterwards. Like, yeah. and they like, <laughs> like, but they'll just completely, regardless of what the facts are, they'll be like, okay, who is the, like, who's wearing the black hat in this, who's wearing the white hat in this story? Okay, well then I'm with them. You know, it's sort of like the old uh, Pierre Laval uh, line, right? My country, right or wrong? Like, yeah, you know, right. like which is, uh, that, that's not a, that's not a great way to be. <laughs> you know, like. So we've got an example right now, the Rittenhouse trial. And, and on, on this particular day, I believe that the jury is in deliberation. So we should be hearing th- certainly this week at some point uh, what the result of the Rittenhouse trial is. But that's a, that's a good example of the phenomenon that, that you're talking about, where most people don't know the details and their view of the Rittenhouse trial lines up on, you know, they're, they're pro-Rittenhouse because they're right-wing or they're anti-Rittenhouse because they're left-wing. And then oftentimes have fantasies about what actually happened in, in that case. That is, that, would be that, is a, that is a perfect, perfect example. And in fact, the best thing that I've read on that subject uh, was my wife found this article 
um, the other day. It, it actually came out like earlier this year. I think it came out in May or something like that. It was in the New Yorker. It's very, very long. Like it's, uh, it's a, it goes in depth into the whole Rittenhouse story. But one of the things that the author makes absolutely clear is that this story immediately just got sucked up into the culture war, like, you know, meat grinder. And people just put out all these things on both sides that were utter bullshit. Like, and they were lapped up by everybody. You know, NPR was repeating them. PBS was repeating them. Obviously, Fox and Breitbart. They were yeah. all, and, and they were just completely not true, right? Like, they, and so they, they changed things. They, they turned him into a white supremacist, and they turned him into, like, all these different right. things. They said these things about his mother, which turned out to be completely not true. And then, you, you know, when you look at, like, what the real story is, the real story is it's kind of a pretty interesting story, but it doesn't fit in any kind of convenient way into the culture war narratives. But I've actually had the situation recently where I've posted some things about the written out from the New Yorker. Okay. This is not like some right wing, you know, like I've posted bits from there and I was like accused of all these like horrible things, like saying like, I can't believe you're spreading uh, misinformation about the victims and all that stuff about, you know, was it Rosenbaum being like a pedophile, a convicted pedophile. Right. And a, like, that's right. a matter of public record. It's like right. in the New Yorker, are like, yes, he did go to jail for like a decade for like, uh, you know, sexually abusing like children. And he did, you know, like that stuff is all just like true. But yeah, that was basically, that was deemed political. Right, those truths were deemed political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's what we'll see what happens in the trial, and of course, whatever happens in the trial, the side that doesn't get the result that it wants to get from the trial will say, "Well, then it wasn't a good trial." Yeah. Uh, but as far as comparing it to the Dreyfusard case, Applebaum, it's 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 rhetorically ingenious because she puts her side of the debate with, say, the Polish nationalists and the populists around the world as she she is the inheritor of the Dreyfusard legacy, and they're the inheritors of the anti-Dreyfusard legacy. And so she gets to be the proponent of, of objectivity and reason and so on because Dreyfusard was innocent, whereas they turn out to be the irrational, crazy people who, you know, they always had a view of it that was disconnected with reality, which, again, is, is her narrative for why this is happening. Mm-hmm. You also had a thing about what aboutism, and I, I maybe you could just yeah. touch on that because I thought that was really well, fascinating. Yeah, so that that could that could uh, help here. So um, she has this old friend. I think his last name is O'Sullivan. I don't know him except from this book, and I gather he had a distinguished career before <laughs> before things everything went haywire. Whenever that was, 2016, and and yet since then, by her account, well, the fact is he's moved to Hungary. He is in charge of some institute there that is funded by the Hungarian government. She's very anti-Orban, obviously. And so she thinks basically he's, he's lost his way, but he's one of the few people who talks to her. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the only glimpses we get of what people on the other side from her perspective actually think. And we don't hear very much, you know, it's not a robust account. I mean, and, and again, she caricatures the people on the other side as alt-right or having alt-right people as their 
uh, inspirations, but she never mentions who those all right people are or what their books are or what they think and so on. So we're just kind of in the dark because I think she's in the dark about what the ideas are on the other side. But here it is. She talks to O'Sullivan and wants to find out, well, why, you know, why have you switched sides? Why are you, you know, pro-populist, pro-nationalist and so on? And in her account, every time she says, but what about this lie of Orban or what about this lie of law and justice or what about this crazy thing Trump said or whatever? He always says, but what about and then list something uh, from the establishment that is is uh, false or, or, or a lie or so on. So. So there, that, that's just a report of what goes on in the book. She takes that to be decisive uh, as a critique. So you see this sometimes on Twitter. I, I even see it uh, among my colleagues that if if they're criticizing something that uh, from your side, and then you say, "But what about what's going on on your side?" They say you're committing whataboutism, as if it's not relevant that both sides are doing the same things. Mm-hmm. So at least that's that's the the template. I think. It, it depends. I think this is extremely complicated because, yes, of course, there are situations where one one a, a terrible defense of something evil would be, well, what about this trivial thing that you did? Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously a, a bad thing to do. But then I think at the other end of the spectrum, it's a perfectly rational response. So if if you're in a political climate, let's say, where there are two choices and you've made a choice for X, and there are all kinds of problems with X, which you recognize when someone says, what about these problems with, when they, I won't uh, equivocate here, when they say, look at these problems with X, you could say, you know what, I'm not going to defend those. Those are definitely problems. But I had a choice between X and Y. And what about these problems with with Y? The argument being the problems with, with Y are so much worse than the problems with X. That I think is a reasonable use of what she calls whataboutism. But she doesn't distinguish those two uses. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's actually a, a good point. I think Aaron Haspel had a really interesting aphorism about that a couple of years ago, where he said, you know, Doesn't he if, always? yeah, he said, you know, if if whataboutism is just trying to deflect from the the subject at hand, uh, then yeah, that that's just kind of a sleazy debate club trick. But if if the whataboutism is pointing out like a, an important context. Then that's fine. I mean, that that's yeah. completely fine. Like, I, I think it's right, and it's often it's often quite telling. I mean, that's like uh, you know Rousseau. I'm sure would be nodding his head to that. He would say, "Yeah, if somebody's talking about the Tartars all the time, and meanwhile their neighbors are are going hungry, going to bed hungry, and there's all this like, well, you know, why don't you why don't you clean your room? <laughs> why don't you like why don't you take care of the people around you?" Uh, in your community that that need help rather than focusing on these uh you know it, it's not as if we we have to choose necessarily but yeah if somebody's talking a whole lot about one thing um and not recognizing that they're doing it too and in a very hypocritical way yeah that that seems like definitely fair game so she's not uh she's seeing this as being like just absolutely proves you're wrong if you engage in whataboutism that's right. And let me give the instance of what about them that I think is legitimate. So I sort of characterize it abstractly, but here's the concrete version that, that I myself endorse. So take some of these politicians. I'm more familiar with some than I am with others. And, and I'm not saying I support any or all of them, but if I were to support one particular one and someone were to say, you know, here are these problems with that. And then I said, well, what, if, you know, like here are the lies. 
Well, take Trump. So here are the lies he's told. I mean, there's so many you can't even count. It becomes bewildering after a while. And they call that the big lie. And I, I bought that for a long time. What about, right, to use the, the term that would, will then get criticized, what about the lies on the other side? Now, first of all, when you look at the lies that the Democrats tell, they're never so egregious as the Trump lies. So it's easy to point at the Trump lies and say, well, these are just, there are more of them. They're more, uh, you know, they're more egregious. They're, they're crazy in many instances and so on. And, th- and that makes whataboutism in this instance look like cheap. So I, I get why someone would think that it's cheap. But here's the way in which I think it's actually not cheap, but it requires one to go a little deeper to see what's actually being claimed. What I would claim is that in that instance, the Democrats often launder their lies through universities and the media, so that, especially universities, so that universities have quote unquote experts who certify the lies. And then the media reports them as if they're true, because after all, Professor so-and-so at this prestigious institution said it's true, and Professor so-and-so at this other prestigious institution said it's true. Then the Democrat politician can say, you know, as the experts have shown us, and, but it's a lie. And then the question, you know, as long as you recognize sort of that's the mechanism, then it becomes an empirical question of, well, how big is that lie? How, or how big is that network of lies that are, that are being told? And then, well, we can get into the the details. I think that there are some very big lies that are being told about all kinds of really important things, but because they're being laundered through universities and I see them getting generated inside of universities, I simply can't buy the claim that someone like Trump is the biggest liar. I just don't believe that anymore. Yes, he's a liar. Yes, he has crazy conspiracy theories and so on. I would be embarrassed to ever defend him, but... What about these huge lies, which are seeping into every corner of our society? Yeah. Um, you know, for example, let me give you an example. Um, my son is in a public school now in the United States, and he has started sex ed. And his sex ed class started uh, with the teacher who was non-binary who uh, wanted to be called Mix, MX, period, rather than Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. Mix. I won't give the name. And spent the first several weeks of the sex ed class talking about everybody's gender journey. And it's a very complicated matter, gender. I've written on it. I, I, I teach about it. I don't think that my view fits in any of the boxes. I've talked about it in some other podcasts. I'd like to write about it uh, more broadly eventually. Anyway, but... That approach to gender that Mix was disseminating in a sixth grade sex ed class at a public school, state funded in the United States, that view of gender, I recognized immediately from all the university seminars where that view of gender eventually became accepted as true. But I saw when it first got generated by Judith Butler and other thinkers like her in the humanities in the 90s. So I've seen what I take to be a false view of gender get laundered through quote unquote experts in the university, then disseminated by the media, and then very quickly get absorbed into the educational system and thus into the wider culture. I mean, of course, this generation growing up is just going to take that to be true. And when I say that, I mean, I'll be misunderstood, I'm sure, a particular understanding of what gender is with which I disagree. We would have to get into the deep. But do you see sort of what I mean about the way oh, in which yeah, I mean, I, I think very big lie can get launched by the university teacher, and yeah. media? 
Yeah, your son's teacher sounds first and foremost to me like just like like a raging narcissist. I mean, because that's that's well, exactly. so that's so obviously like just talking about your personal experience as if it's like everybody as it as if it stands in for all of human experience. And that's well, John, John, you're very insightful because the entire first session was all about Mix's gender journey. It was a personal narrative about Mix's gender journey. And my son saw through it immediately. He realized what this teacher is just just talking about themselves. And uh, the the course is going to be to what extent are we more or less like Mix? Yeah. And it seems to me that one of the basic things about growing up and, and becoming like a mature human being is to realize, and, and not just intellectually, like on an emotional level, to really, really realize that there's other people in the world, that there's this whole other other creatures that have sometimes a radically different experience than yours, and they've got their own thing going on. And like to think everything is is about you or like you and to have a mental model of others, uh, which is just sort of an approximation of your own inner life, as you understand it, is just, it's such an unbelievably immature, narcissistic way of seeing the world. I mean, it's like, it's the, you know, they talk about the anthropomorphic fallacy, which is, you know, it has some problems with that that theory. But it, it's sort of committing something like that, but on a much more grand scale where you don't even... You don't even real, really see other people as being real. Like you're the only real thing in the world, and so if this is your gender journey, then like uh, you know, kids should be subjected to it. It's like it's uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and it, it also it seems like it's another problem with it is that if you're studying any phenomenon, you you have to figure out or try to some approximation figure out to what extent your experience of it is uh, representative or not. So if I if I'm going to talk to if I want to know about like racial profiling and in how police you know dealing with law enforcement you know I, I recognize as a white guy I probably don't you know who's not homeless who's not you know person of color I recognize that probably my experience of that is not necessarily like universally applicable so I'm going to go and talk to people who have like perhaps a, a different and more problematic experience with those interactions and then, and find out like, and, and try and like build a more, a more kind of inclusive, interesting understanding of that phenomenon rather than just taking it for granted that my experience is like universal. And it seems like that teacher is just, <laughs> I mean, like, I think that that teacher's experience and gender journey is very interesting. I actually would be interested to hear what it was, but it seems strange to represent that as like in any way a typical human experience with gender. Well, also this is a sex ed class and my son's sort of at the threshold of sexuality. So what's most important for someone at that age to learn, (laughs) tell us about the STDs and about pregnancy. Yes. Yeah, tell us about that stuff and tell us like, you know, the basic facts and everything. Like I remember my yeah. te- my teacher well, facts, exactly. Yeah, my facts. I remember my teacher uh, grade 5 teacher Mr. Hogg 
big, tall guy, big, booming voice. It looked incredibly awkward having to teach us sex ed. But he just went over all the facts. And then he definitely, even then, I mean, this is like, I don't know, uh, 1986, 85, something like that, 80, mid, mid-80s. Uh, but he actually talked about homosexuality in a very, very sympathetic way. And he said, oh, yeah, and then there's some people that – um, that, you know, love some women who love other women, some men. And like, and he talked about that in a very kind of respectful and fine way. But, but he, he didn't spend the entire semester talking just about, let's say, uh, gay male S&M culture. Because, <laughs> you know, not because he, I, I think, not because he had any problem with it, just because he recognized that that would be professional malpractice. Like that, that's not, in any way representative of what most people's experience of sexuality is, right? right. It's one, so, it's, it's part of the kind of beautiful diversity of human sexual experience, but it's not like, you know, it's not what you would spend all of your time in an intro class talking about. Yeah. So I want to go in a couple of different directions. First of all, I think, I think you'll like this. My son was, uh, you know, so he, he began in public school. He was fresh from Catholic school before that, before the pandemic. And he said that the role that Mix plays in this new school is the same role that the priest played in his old school. So the priest at the old school was not a teacher, but was kind of a supervisor of the school. And what, he, what my son meant by that is that at the Catholic school, Everybody had to agree with the priest, whatever the priest said that you, you definitely did not want to get on the wrong side of the priest. He said, that's the role that mix plays at this school, because he can tell that some of the teachers roll their eyes and are like, not don't agree with what, what mix is doing, but that they won't make any kind of public. I mean, rolling your eyes is probably even too strong. My son just got a sense that, especially from one particular teacher, I wouldn't want to get this teacher in trouble. One particular teacher thought uh, my son sensed that, that uh, what was being taught in that class was, was not correct. And but however, wasn't willing to make any kind of public statement like that. So that gets, that gets back to our point about this, this new ideology, uh, take Wesley Young's term, the successor ideology, this new ideology with its many facets, gender, race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is now playing this quasi-religious role in the schools. Yeah. You had, a, another, you had another point where you said that, uh, that you thought Applebaum didn't cover very well, which was that the relationship between Nazism and and communism in the 20th century. And you said they, they have a sort of a kind of a dialectical relationship and that she's missing that. What, what did you mean by yeah. that? Well, I mean, you know, that's, that could be nitpicking. Um, so I, I should probably not get into that just because I know she's written books about the Soviet Union. So I'm sure she has a very sophisticated view of the relationship between the Soviets and the Nazis. And I was just, I was just thinking about one particular passage in this book and I, I, I could be misinterpreting it just because there wasn't enough context. Okay. And then if, also, if you and, know what I'm, yeah, yeah. Tell me what you think. So she spoke at that point in the book as if Nazism and communism were just two sides of the same coin, namely authoritarianism. And it makes sense from the account of authoritarianism she's giving, which is what is authoritarianism in her, in her understanding. It is, uh, it's the, it's an appealing ideology of people who can't handle the complexity of the world. And they want a simple answer. They want one person, they want, you know, simple answers to everything. And you can look at Nazism and communism, I suppose, as, as responding to that craving that she thinks some people have for simplicity as opposed to complexity. Again, just to go back to the beginning point, I think that's, 
an absurd definition of authoritarianism because if Caesar counts as an authoritarian, I don't see Caesar as a man or what Caesar represented as any more simple than what Cicero <laughs> represented. So that, that that dichotomy just simply doesn't work for the very thing that she's using as an example of her own program, which is to do for the 21st century what Cicero did for antiquity. But at any rate, if that's what she meant, is that Nazism and communism are just two sides of the, of the authoritarian coin, I don't think that gets the historical relationship between Nazi and communism correct, because communism comes first, and Nazism comes second, and a lot of the energy that Nazis drew from was anti-communism. In other words, Nazism is a reactionary ideology. Communism is a progressive ideology. I think that's that's a key asymmetry between those two. So yeah, I mentioned it as a critique that I would have of, of a particular reading of history. But again, I don't know that that's her particular reading of history, that these are two coordinate authoritarian systems, because I, I think important conclusions follow uh, from, from that difference. You know, which one, which one is the which one is the thrust of modernity? I, I think it's communism insofar as the modern period, you know, where we date the beginning of that uh, is debatable, but, you know, the 18th century or whenever, the thrust of modern political life is egalitarianism and communism is the most extreme form of egalitarianism. Nazism is not in that reading um, along that line of movement towards equality. It's rather a reaction against, it's trying to get back to a political order that didn't have equality as its as its driving force. Okay, and you also say that she uh, she has a tendency to not recognize satire. Like she doesn't she takes <laughs> she takes jokes as being you know serious. Well, so she complains a lot about Twitter. So so let me just back up. What does she think is causing the rise of authoritarianism as she understands it? Well, she mentions a number of things, but it seems. The, the, the thing that she really focuses on beyond just the crazy irrationality of her opponents is social media. She thinks that social media has coarsened the discourse and uh, created uh, polarization. Well, one of the problems she has with social media is that there's so much irony and satire and, and memes and so on. And I, I, think, I think this is ironic because she's talking all the time about, you know, the non-authoritarian people, the good people like her, they can handle complexity, but the authoritarians want simplicity. Well, what is Twitter? It's very complex. It's some people are making serious points with, with evidence and charts and so on. Other people are just retweeting things with, with satirical comments. There are memes and so on. It's cacophonous. And she's reacting against that cacophony with the kind of spirit she's claiming is that of authoritarianism. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I I think I I, I get that. I, I guess what her what she seems to have a problem with in many different domains is cynicism. I mean, that seems to be like her what she thinks is the real problem, and you know what she talks about, you know the the rhetoric of of moral equivalence, and that this ultimately uh, the kind of Thrasymachus from the Republic, like that kind of like. That certain kind of like, oh, everything's just power. Everything's just a joke. Uh, yes. Actually, I'm actually I'll, I'll read the passage because it's worth actually okay. being clear on what we're talking about here. So, what page is it on? Just so I can read along. Um, I have it on my Kindle on my phone, so I don't know oh, what. It doesn't uh, matter. Just go. But she says uh, in 2017, in a 2017 interview with Bill O'Reilly of Fox News, Donald Trump expressed his admiration for Vladimir Putin, the Russian dictator, using a class of classic form of whataboutism. But he's mm -hmm. a killer, said O'Reilly. There are a lot of killers. 
You think our country's so innocent? Trump replied. Two years earlier, he expressed a similar thought in another television interview, this time with Joe Scarborough. He's running his country, and at least he's a leader, he said of Putin, unlike what we have in this country. I think our country does plenty of killing also, Joe, so, you know. This way of speaking, Putin is a killer, but so are are we all, mirrors Putin's own propaganda, which often states in so many words, okay, Russia is corrupt, but so is everyone else. It is an argument for moral equivalence, an argument that undermines faith, hope, and the belief that we can live up to the language of our constitution. It is also an argument that is useful to the president because it gives him the license to be a killer or to be corrupt or to break the rules just like everyone else. On a trip to Dallas, I heard a version of this from one of the president's wealthy supporters. Yes, she told me, he is corrupt. But so, she believed, were all of the presidents who went before him. We just didn't know about it before. That idea gave her, an upstanding citizen, a law-abiding patriot, the license to support a corrupt president. If everybody is corrupt and always has been, then whatever it takes to win is okay. This, of course, is the argument that Anti-American extremists, the groups on the far right and the far left fringes of society, have always made. American ideals are false, American institutions are fraudulent, American behavior abroad is evil, and the language of the American project is, uh, is it? Uh, the language of the American project, equality, opportunity, justice, is nothing but empty slogans. The real reality in this conspiratorial view is that of secretive businessmen or perhaps deep state bureaucrats who manipulate the voters into going along with their plans using the cheesy language of Thomas Jefferson as a cover story. Whatever it takes to overthrow these evil schemers is justified. This form of moral equivalence, the belief that democracy is no different at base from autocracy, is a familiar argument and one long used by authoritarians. Back in 1986, Jean Kirkpatrick, a scholar, intellectual, and Reagan's UN ambassador, wrote of the danger both to the United States and to its allies from the rhetoric of moral equivalence that was coming at the time from the Soviet Union. Guns, weapons, even nuclear warheads were dangerous to democracies, but not nearly as dangerous as this particular form of cynicism. To destroy a society, she wrote, it is first necessary to delegitimize its basic institutions. If you believe that American institutions are no different from their opposite, then there is no reason to defend them. And this is what Trump has proven. Beneath the surface of the American consensus, the belief in our founding fathers and the faith in our ideals, there lies another America, Buchanan's America, Trump's America, one that sees no important distinction between democracy and dictatorship. This America feels no attachment to other democracies. This America is not exceptional. This America has no special democratic spirit of the kind Jefferson described. The unity of this America is created by white skin, a certain idea of Christianity, and an attachment to land that will be surrounded and defended by a wall. This America's ethnic nationalism resembles the old-fashioned ethnic nationalism of older European nations. This America's cultural despair resembles their cultural despair. The surprise is not that this definition of America is there. It has always existed. The surprise is that it emerged in the political party that has most ostentatiously used flags, banners, patriotic symbols, and parades to signify its identity. So what do you make of that? Let them eat cake. (laughs) 
Yeah, I thought that's what you would say. <laughs> so you're you're not uh, you're not convinced. <laughs> so, shall we end it there, and she'll get the last word, or shall, uh, do you want me to read from that? Uh, no, you can you can get the last word, and uh, we'll we'll close up with your your response to that. Because I mean, that I think is kind of the heart of her argument. It, it kind of rises and falls based on that. Okay, yeah, I feel like I need a shower after that. So, <laughs> uh, what's what's the? It's it all sounds great. I I believed it as recently as two years ago. So. Uh, I, I totally understand why someone would be t- very persuaded, persuaded sufficiently by that passage. So what's the problem from my current point of view? My current point of view is that its use of the word democracy is mendacious. I, I got at that a bit in the kind of nerdy section of the interview where, you know, I said, you know, there's democracy and there's autocracy according to her, her world. And those are the only two choices. Mm-hmm. That whole passage you just read depends on that dichotomy. So there are autocrats like Putin and they do X, Y, and Z. And there are, there's democracies and we don't do that kind of thing because of our ideals and the faith, hope, et cetera, et cetera, that we have in them. Well, it, it, it all depends on that false dichotomy between democracy and autocracy. So that's why it sounds so good. But when you look at what she's actually talking about, which is not a democracy, but an oligarchy, which pretends to be a democracy, then it gets much hazier. And then I'm not even sure what her claim is. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess- and so the reason why I say let them eat cake is that it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful passage if it were true, but it's a fantasy of the sort that Marie Antoinette had on the eve of the French Revolution. So if, if Applebaum wants to go to the guillotine believing that in that revolution, then, then uh, I should be careful. I'm not advocating the guillotine. I'm just saying that Dark times are ahead of us so long as the elite keeps believing in that fantasy. Well, that is a a very, very elegant place to end. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And um, I hope now that the border is reopened, I hope uh, that I can see you in person, either me coming down there or you coming up here. Oh, oh, you're Uh, you're always welcome down here, John. Yeah, I've got to go out on that boat of yours. Yes. That just looks amazing. That looks like so much fun. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. All right, take care. Bye.